doctor told us she thought he had Down syndrome. My husband and I were devastated. Immediately, we began to mourn the loss of the child we thought we were going to have and to worry about the health and future of the baby that had unexpectedly replaced him. That first long night, I stayed alone in the hospital while John went home to take care of our older son, Noah. Unable to sleep, he took Michael Barabay's Life as We Know It off our bookshelf. I'm sure I don't have to tell this audience that Life as We Know It is, at least in part, the story of the first three years in the life of Jamie Barabay, Michael's own son with Down syndrome. It was the first book I had ever reviewed way back in graduate school when I never thought I would have children of my own and my interest in disability studies was purely academic. Now it took on new meaning. Of course, we knew that Henry would be an individual with his own personality and abilities, not a clone of Jamie. But in the first weeks of our son's life, life as we know it became our guide, a portrait of what it might mean to have a person with Down syndrome in our family. As we struggled to get Henry to drink from a bottle, I would report, Michael and Janet had a contest to see who could get Jamie to drink the most milk. Or John, who loves geography and maps of all kinds, would say hopefully, do you remember the part where Michael says that Jamie has an incredible sense of direction? Or, as we thought fearfully of how Noah might be affected by having a brother with a disability, we would remember Michael's stories of how Jamie taught his older brother about kindness, compassion, and appreciation for difference. As scholars, we aspire to write books that will enlighten and inspire our readers. Some of us succeed. But it is the rare literary critic whose books also offer wisdom and comfort in a time of crisis. Michael's book did precisely that for me and my family and for the numerous other parents I've met in the years since Henry was born. Of course, Life as We Know It isn't really a work of literary criticism, although it does offer some great insights about Faulkner. And it isn't really a memoir. It's the kind of wondrous hybrid that only someone with Michael's talents as a thinker and a prose stylist could pull off as he moves deftly from the personal, Jamie's hatred of physical therapy, or Michael himself piercing his eardrum with a Q-tip, to discussions of the ADA and educational policy, the politics of genetic testing, the history of people with intellectual disabilities in the United States, and all of this illuminated by insights from such thinkers as Rawls, Wittgenstein, Steven Pinker, and Noam Chomsky. The ability to synthesize uncommon points of view, to argue forcefully about issues that matter, and to write clearly for multiple audiences without being simplistic, makes Michael Barabay such an important contributor to the various fields that sponsored his talk tonight. His CV is truly massive. Um, I didn't even print it, it's like 35 pages or more, <laughs> reflecting a formidable, I did read it, but on screen, a formidable intellectual breadth, energy, and sheer stamina. I once asked Michael how he does it all. He shrugged modestly and told me he's a person who doesn't need to sleep very much. <laughs> Michael's keen sense of how to use storytelling to inspire respect, compassion, and empathy embodies the ideals of narrative medicine. 
so too he's been among the smartest and most influential contributors to the field of disability studies, his voice reaching not only academic audiences, but a broader public. His academic writing on disability has appeared in so many journals and collections that it would take the entire evening to mention them here. But it's also appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Times Higher Education Supplement, Slate.com, Boston Globe, New York Times Magazine, and Descent, among others. He's a generous and talented speaker who's been invited to talk about disability, not only at countless conferences and symposia, but also with disability rights groups. And then there's the Michael Barabay that is one of the foremost literary critics of our moments. He's currently second vice president of the Modern Language Association, of which he'll become president in 2012. He's the author of at least four books about literary and cultural studies, and there are more books about other things, if you can believe it, the humanities, cultural politics, as well as a massive list of articles and reviews. In this field, too, he moves gracefully from writing for academic audiences to a broader public, showing us why debates over cultural studies, the canon wars, postmodernism, liberalism and liberal studies, and academic freedom should matter beyond the academy to all citizens who aspire to be part of a functioning liberal democratic society. Since October, those of us who follow Michael's timely, smart, and witty blog, American Airspace, have been mourning its retirement, although it keeps retiring and coming back, so I'm hoping that it's not the end. I especially miss the occasional posting about what Jamie's up to. So I'm especially pleased that tonight Michael will return us to the scene of life as we know it, to fill us in on what Jamie has been thinking and doing in the decade or so since the book was first published. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Thank you all for inviting me. And thank you for um, that introduction, Rachel. This talk better be good now. Um, <laughs> Um, well, um, when I first got this invitation, um, part of it involved the invitation to read from Life as We Know It, and I thought, as Jamie would say, but we did that already. Um, I know that sometimes writers do that, and it's so unfair, they've already written it, and they, and they read it, but, you know, it's already written, where is it? <laughs> and then there's, you know, the, the, the whole different Q&A protocol for writers. But I guess uh, I'm sometimes... Um, do some writing myself. So I decided what I would do, instead of doing life as we know it, uh, I would you know, do some of the updates, sort of a mashup of um, things Jamie did yesterday, uh, things I've been thinking about Jamie for the last 15 years. Um, the largest thing here, and I'm just going to glimpse at it, but I'll mention it ahead of time because the t talk itself is only a glimpse. I'm supposed to be writing a book called Narrative and Disability. It would kind of fit in. <laughs> I wish I had it done. I mean, um, it started <clears throat> me, with the um, with the question about uh, intellectual disability and narrative. So much of disability studies up to that point, about that point, we're talking about six years ago already, uh, was still invested in representations of disability, which is still got to be done. Um, but uh, not as much in the portrait and the representation of intellectual disability, especially from the inside out. Obviously, Benji Thompson, obviously, Curious Incident, you know, the, uh, um, the, uh, the Speed of Dark, and so forth. And it struck me that um, these uh, 
disabled narratives were uh, experimental narratives in some way, in a way to shed light on the way that experimental narrative itself was disabled, because I think, um, basically, if, if, anyone, has anyone here read Lisa Sunshine's book, uh, Why We Read Fiction? Right? It's, it's one of the examples of you know, cognitive science doing literary studies, you know, going to be a straight merger. Uh, it's a good book, <clears throat> but the, uh, the Sunshine's uh, thesis is that we read fiction in order to work out our theory of mind. Uh, and she takes as her example, curious incident of a dog in the meantime, <clears throat> but does not really remark on the fact that you use an example of a character who has to be told what theory of mind is in order to write a chapter on one, in order to, you know, what does it mean to start with, deconstruction teaches something about this, you know, you start with the aberrant to shine light on what you think is the normal case, that is worthy of interrogation in and of itself. Dang, I've written half the book already. Um, maybe that's like sort of the, the opening move. What does it mean? How do these narratives about intellectual disability shed light on what narrative is? Right. Now, if I can just answer that, I have a book. Okay, so, <laughs> this, um, the way I'll get to that in, in this talk is um, there's a sort of sub-narrative going on in it about Jamie's growing consciousness of narrative. And, I would love it if that consciousness burgeoned to the point where two, three years from now he can really uh, collaborate with me uh, on the follow-up. He's uh, promised to do so, and he's gotten much better uh, as a storyteller, um, partly because he has a better sense of what people need to know in order to know what he is saying. Uh, they need the backstory, otherwise you know, the joke doesn't work, or the, the anecdote doesn't, you know, falls flat, or what have you. So, this is the written part. In his 1994 book, <clears throat> Rethinking Life and Death, Peter Singer famously claimed that to have a child, quote, to have a child with Down syndrome is to have a very different experience from having a normal child. It can still be a warm and loving experience, but we must have lowered expectations of our child's ability. We cannot expect a child with Down syndrome to play the guitar, to develop an appreciation of science fiction, to learn a foreign language, to chat with us about the latest Woody Allen movie, or to be a respectable athlete, basketballer, or tennis player, close quote. For those of us who work with people with Down syndrome, in whatever capacity, this is a deservedly infamous passage, and some of what I say this afternoon will consist of a rebuttal of it. Um, not that I have to do much work on that front. For the most part, my rebuttal consists of accounts of Jamie's life and his progress over the last 10 or 12 years. But I want to admit at the outset that if back in 1994, if I had read this when Jamie was three and I was just beginning to think about writing the plant as we know it, I might have fallen to this. I did not know what to expect when we had Jamie, but I did expect that I would have lowered expectations for him. Now what I found though is I have to keep moving the goalposts, or that really that Jamie keeps moving the goalposts for me. It's true that he does not play the guitar, so I'll give Singer that much, but uh, his interest in Star Wars and Galaxy Quest has given him an appreciation of science fiction, just as his fascination with Harry Potter has led him to ask questions about justice and injustice, innocence, and guilt. This starts, of course, with you, those of you who know your Harry Potter, with uh, serious blacks being framed for the murder of 13 muggles. <clears throat> and the very fact, I mean, now I call Harry Potter, you know, the, the uh, uh, young adult Proust. I mean, the, 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 fact, the fact that he could actually get through all seven volumes. Now, I was reading them to him, but he would remember things that had to go back and ask it, and it's really an extraordinary thing. Which, back to Lisa Sunshine, is one of the reasons I think we read fiction, not only to work out theory of mind, but to enhance our um, memory and emotional repertoire. Anyway, <clears throat> as we were reading the final book in the series, back in 2007 and 08, it did take two years, Jamie kept asking whether Harry would turn into Voldemort in the end. That's a very good question, as some of you may know. And since then, one of my colleagues, Robert Casario, you know, what are we going to do after reading Harry Potter? You know, where else is there to go? 
uh, so he gave us Philip uh, Pullman's His Dark Materials series. Um, and uh, Jamie has been uh, fascinated. This is the third book, The Under Spyglass, Lyra and Will Try to Journey to the Land of the Dead. Um, they have hell, basically. Jamie is learning a foreign language. He is taking French too in his senior year of high school now. Uh, he is, we worked out this arrangement with his quite wonderful French teacher who he's had these past four years. He took uh, French one for two years, and he took French two for two years. Yeah, why not? Because right? it violates some state law. You know? <clears throat> uh, last year, Jamie, Jamie learned some genuinely difficult things. The passé composé, a form of the past tense, the vetoire and avoir as auxiliary verbs, two forms of the future tense, one using aller as auxiliary verb, a reflexive verb, je me lave, tu te laves, so forth. And then at the very end of the year, the imperfect tense, which kind of fried him. At that point, like, that's enough tense. Yeah, but it's, it's still going on. In the oh, never mind. Yeah. So we'll get back to it. Maybe he'll get it. You know, when he doesn't get the first year, sometimes he picks up the second year. And by, by the way, I mean, from my limited experience of traveling in France, if you're an American, you speak three tenses. You get all kinds of you know, aloha just for that. You know, doing the imperfect is a little show off. <laughs> So, I mean, he has learned enough French to be able to converse with a very impressed North African man he met in the kitchen of a restaurant in Florence last summer. Don't ask how he got into the kitchen. Um, he was just dancing down the street and just disappeared, and I thought, oh, he's no. But he's also been able to charm young women at cheese counters of French supermarkets by saying, je voudrais de chef, s'il vous plaît. We were talking just yesterday the difference between je voudrais and je veux, because I think he had turned to me and said, more or something. No, not even close. Not even. That's like, that even ruder than I want. <laughs> now, I have to admit that neither of us have the least interest in chatting about the latest Woody Allen movie, but this makes, takes me to another level of argument. Okay? Um, two years ago, I had an exchange with Peter Singer about this. It, it started actually as a part of a conference hosted by and organized by Eva Cate. And I didn't get to talk to Singer directly during the conference, but through the power of blogs, managed to engage him later. And part of the exchange turned, it was really, this was almost a Wittgensteinian thing, on, on the interpretation of what he meant by we cannot expect. Uh, no, in ordinary language, that means you must not expect. And he's like, no, 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 it just means you can't, you know, it shouldn't be a moment that a child dancing for would you know, have all these other talents. You know, and I said, well, that's not the way people read that. I mean, especially if they're you know, uh, talking to geneticists, or they're you know, contemplating pregnancy. Uh, it has a much more, uh, shall we say, strenuous connotation than that. So I had two responses to this. Uh, I said, first of all, by the way, I do enjoy a handful of Woody Allen movies here and there. Uh, Broadway, Danny Rose, wonderful piece of work. Balls over Broadway, great piece of thing. Sleeper holds up really well. It's really funny. But here's my point. In the 1920s, we were told that people with Down syndrome were incapable of learning how to talk. In the 70s, we were told that the people with Down syndrome were incapable of learning how to read. So now the new performance criterion for being considered fully human is the ability to chat about Woody Allen films. <laughs> 20 years from now, we'll be hearing, sure, they hit Woody Allen, but only the early stuff like Sleeper. <laughs> I completely failed to appreciate the breakthrough of interiors and start us memories. <laughs> My second point is a bit broader, but it follows directly from the first. Early intervention programs have made such dramatic differences in the lives of people with Down syndrome over the past four decades that we simply do not know what the range of functioning looks like and therefore do not rightly know what to expect. That, I think, is the real challenge of being a parent of a child with Down syndrome. It's not a matter of contesting other people's low expectations of your child, though that's part of it. It's also a matter of recalibrating your own expectations time and time again, and not only for your own child, but for Down syndrome itself. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I saw a young man with Down syndrome playing the violin quite competently, you know, with delicacy and sense of nuance. I thought I was seeing a griffin. 
And who could have imagined just 40 or 50 years ago that the children we are institutionalizing and leaving to rot could in fact grow up to become actors. Likewise, not that that's a pinnacle of human experience, right? But the point is you had to be able to thematize yourself in a certain way you know, to, to perform that job at all. Likewise, a few years ago when I remarked to Jamie that time is so strange that nobody really understands it. And we can't touch it or see it even though we watch the passing of every day. And it only goes forward like an arrow, and quick as a flash, Jamie replied, except with Hermione's time turner. <laughs> I was so stunned and nearly crashed the car. <laughs> this, by the way, because we were late getting into a summer program. That's why we're talking about time. This summer, we spent a week in Newport, Rhode Island, whereupon Jamie informed us all that Jaws 2 was set in Newport. But Jaws 1 was set in a Cape Cod-esque town. And we were walking along the street, I just thought, I said, wait, did you say Cape Cod-esque? And he said, uh-huh. That's like, almost like Woody Allen. Uh -huh. So I took issue with Singer's passage, not because I'm a sentimental fool, or because I believe that one child's surprising accomplishments suffice to win the argument, but because as we learn more about Down syndrome, we honestly, if paradoxically, don't know what constitutes a reasonable expectation for a person with Down syndrome. But, to get to that argument, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, in 1996, of course, I had published Life as We Know It. It was about our, you know, the first four years of his life. People told me at the time, oh, you'll you be one of these people who published the thing about their young kid. You do a while now, they're still cute. Well, you know, hell with that. He's still cute. Okay. <laughs> 19 years old, still incredibly cute. Cape Cod S. I mean, that's, that's kind of the goal. Jamie knows now that there's a book about him. He knows I'm here talking about him. He knows that people read about him. He's promised to help me with that follow-up book. And when it comes to talks like this, uh, Jamie knows the drill. Uh, a few years ago, I told Jamie that, actually, this was the um, uh, Canadian Down Syndrome Society in 2005. And, and uh, it was one of the things he was able to accompany me on because they had all the day programs for him, and it was terrific. But now he goes with me on any number of things, as I'll explain. But I told him I'd be speaking about him to a large room full of people, and that one of the stories I would tell would be the story of the pizza in the microwave. The pizza in question was wrapped in tinfoil, and the results were pretty scary. Uh, Jamie was uncomfortable with my telling the story, but I, I told him, no, no, this is a, really a good story about how he learned to become more independent. When he saw smoke billowing from the microwave, he came up two flights of stairs and ran and said, I need help. And now we always know to take things out of the tinfoil and put them in the microwave, and he insists on 22 seconds. He's very conservative about this. <laughs> but on this occasion, uh, a couple of years ago, I also asked Jamie if I could tell the story of the day he was sad or whether it was private. Jamie told me it was private, and has remained private ever since. I'm not going to hear it this evening either. So the question of what is public and what is private is exceptionally complex, as Michael Warner knows, but as we can see, and as well, it determines what we can say, and what we can do, and what we can wear in various locations, from the living room to the locker room, and Jamie and I are working this out as we go. He has reached milestones his mother and I didn't even imagine before. He plays golf with me and may be the most patient golfer I've ever known. That's significant virtue. He loves Renaissance art and asks to go to Barnes & Noble to buy books on Da Vinci and Caravaggio. And he knows more about sharks than pretty much anyone who doesn't, any, almost anyone who doesn't study them for a living. And I have stressed that all these milestones are of his own devising. Right? <clears throat> we never sat down, Janet and I decided, <clears throat> we want to have a kid with Down syndrome who can play golf, appreciate Renaissance art, learn French. <laughs> Identify poor beagle sharks, thresher sharks, and poor Jackson sharks. I mean, we're not, and we never have been pushing him. We just, you know, they're not the helicopter parents from hell. But we do listen carefully when he expresses enthusiasm for something, and whenever we hear it, we try to encourage that enthusiasm all we can. 
Now, for example, in eighth grade, he took classes in doctoral music. Eighth grade was a kind of lost year. In fact, he did, we were just at the American Studies Association conference, and it didn't have to be at ASA, but I don't know, he just opened up and got expansive about the history of his paraprofessionals. Go, you know, I'm going to tell. And things that you know, I would not have heard you know, 10 years ago or five years ago. And then he had to get to eighth grade, where he had a person who was actually clinically depressed, you know, who, who didn't to see it as an opportunity to like get some first year French with this kid, but sort of, do I have to do this? And he, it was kind of a lost year. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, he sort of went through French, but that French teacher was kind of, you know, uh, I'd say, you know, in the orange, yellow, wigged out zone about him. You know, she called us and said he's not generating sentences in French, and I said, yeah, he's not generating sentences in English either. <laughs> Sentence generating, not what he does. Mm. Uh, memorizing verb forms. That's what he does. <clears throat> but the art and music class. Now, most people I've mentioned this to say, oh, that's great, that helped, you know, classes that helped Jamie express himself artistically as best he can. That, yeah, that's how these classes work. These were classes in the history of Western art and music, you know, the standard sort of 1400 forward kind of things. And they asked Jamie to understand and identify medieval, Renaissance, Baroque, Romantic, and modern forms of art and music. And again, this is not on our agenda. We were not pounding on the doors of his classroom, demanding that he be acquainted with Bach, or we would sue the entire school district. We simply noted the fact that one day, as he was getting ready for bed, Jamie turned and said out of nowhere, Stravinsky, that's another great composer we didn't mention. <laughs> so, all right, so we generally responded by getting, going to Barnes & Noble and getting one of those Fandex cards, right? Well, you know, it's basically composers since Vivaldi. Now, don't, you know, Jamie doesn't like listening to these composers. Right? He's a teenager. Although, I, 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 I sorry. He, he, there is a girl that he's kind of fond of and so I'm very friendly with, and she's very friendly with him, and she plays the piano. I said, you know, you might want, you know, you got some material to start a conversation. You can ask her what her favorite composer is. And that took like six months. But he did it. And I said, you know, so what'd she say? He says, Chopin. I said, do you know any Chopin? So I put, yes, he can identify Chopin. So oh, Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> so most of the time, though, his tastes are Beatles, uh, Ted Leo and the Pharmacist, uh, Lady Gaga, of course. Uh, but now he has Fandix cards for painters, African countries, dog breeds, and U.S. states, and he's managed to memorize a great deal along the way. I think he now knows all the state capitals and most of the major college football and basketball teams in the country. I, I think there are people in Vermont who don't know the teams, the Catamounts, so um, it's as if he has his own personal Fandex for these things, and it's sort of a catalog of uh, information that his remarkable mind can sort of unroll at will. So now we know he has independence of mind and plenty of it. The challenge of his teen years has been the development of independent living skills. So I want to say a few things about traveling with him because this is part of my project. Not only does it take some of the pressure off Janet, who's got <clears throat> not feeling all that great now, but still has you know, Jamie at home. <coughs> Although he's you know, perfectly capable of taking care of himself mostly. But also I think you know, for the past seven or eight years I've been doing this, I've been trying to enhance his traveling skills because it also, I think, helped him be more at home in the world. Um, and this is another benefit as well that I haven't really counted on. It helps me deal with my fears of leaving him alone and unattended. When he was littler, he did wander away from us a few times in Filing's basement, in shopping malls, in a university gymnasium. I thought, please stay right here. I just have to run back to the, you know. And of course, he wandered off. And I, when I finally found him, I said, you know, where were you? And of course, he said, right here. <laughs> so I became very anxious about leaving him out of my sight, even for an instant. Now again, this would be the case with any small child, but we're talking about a longer period of anxiety and sort of heightened anxiety, because uh, especially when he was younger, he wouldn't call out if you called his name. So you know, just you know, running through the mall yelling Jamie wouldn't, wouldn't really suffice. 
Now, if we were in a public place, well, uh, I insist he hold my hand. If we were at the beach, I would sort of hover over him, eh, helicopter-like. And even then, it doesn't always suffice. Three years ago, we were up in a lake in Maine, and uh, two in-laws and Jan and I, and they're chatting, and I'm doing this, and that. Where the hell did he go? It's a small, you know, like, it's like there's only 20 people here. All right, so I run out, and I run on the dock, and he didn't go under the dock. Yes, he went under the dock. <laughs> and he comes up the other side, and I said, oh my God, did you, you know, the lifeguard would miss this also. Like, oh, no, 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 yeah, I know, I don't want to go under the dock. You, you could bump your head, he goes, I did, three times. <laughs> so, hmm, vigilance, <laughs> not, not entirely unwarranted. Fortunately, he loves everything about traveling. He loves packing and the driving and the airport. He is very self-possessed and mature at security checkpoints, which I think puts him in the upper decile of the population. <laughs> <laughs> the rental car, the hotel, the actual destination, wherever it may be, he has now, I think, been to 37 states at the age of 19. Uh, that's his age. I've been to, like, now here in New Jersey. And, you know, there's always, there usually has to be a pool, and uh, he always has to learn to tell stories about traveling. He's actually struck up conversations at faculty gatherings just to tell him, and, and now he, this is figure one of the devices by which he can you know, do some sort of narrative self-representation. Like the story about the time he had to have a Coke at 7 a.m. in the Dublin airport because there was no milk for sale anywhere. He really enjoyed that. Or the time a few days later when his parents forgot to pack his retainers and left them in a Dublin hotel. So I'm going to tell one story that speaks to some of the challenges and rewards of traveling with Jamie. The story he's familiar with. We've agreed that it is not private. He actually has now loves telling that story as well. But he tells only the first half, which is full of mystery. So four years ago, we traveled to Seattle, Vancouver for a professional conference. We flew to Seattle, drove two hours to Blaine. We got in there at like 1 a.m. or 4, 4 a.m. Eastern. And then we took a day trip to Vancouver. And on the way in, Jamie announced that we were running out of film. I assured him he was entirely wrong about this. I had just bought you know, a disposable camera. And there was 12 exposures on it, and we sat down and ate al fresco uh, lunch at a little restaurant from the Capilano Suspension Bridge, which itself is a whole thing. He's very afraid of heights. Mm -hmm. And the last time I took him to New York, I, I wanted to take him to, to the new Shea Stadium. It's called something else. And um, I, don't know, I don't know the configuration. I got him, I got him a seat in the upper deck of the first row, you know, where you're just having a 40-story you know, fall from there. And it was, mm, but the Capilano Suspension Bridge, which is you know, this thing over 1,500-foot gorge. And, of course, we were behind a guy jumping up and down. I mean, it was, it was, anyway, he did really well with that. But <clears throat> we had this lunch, and I was watching him drinking his soda, and you know, he guy said, you know, you look so cool. You look like you know, a real you know, teenager. Hold on, I'll take your picture. And sure enough, there's no film left in the camera. <laughs> we're running out, Jamie said. Uh, I, I see, yes, I said. Uh, you mean when we crossed the border into Canada, and I left you in the car while I went to get Canadian money, you took all the pictures in the camera. And then you told me you were, we were running out of film. <laughs> yes, Jamie said, with a wry smile, and then says, are you going to sigh? <laughs> no, I sighed. We'll just get another camera, you ignats. Say, oh, what am I going to do with you, Jamie said. Well, this is a line from Curious George, but you know, he finds it appropriate. I said, yes, Jamie, it was a very Curious George thing to do. Use up all the film and take all the pictures in the car. What am I going to do? So he grinned and rubbed his hands together. And then at the end of lunch, I told him we both have to go to the men's room, but he insisted on going by himself. It was like you know, hundreds of yards away. I said, fine, fine, okay. Um, if you can't find it, ask, ask someone. I'll wait for the check. We came back in a few minutes, all hands washed and everything. Check still hadn't arrived. And Jamie says, let's go. I said, no, we're still waiting for the check. Why? I said, I don't know why. So 
clears the singer of water, Frank Thin. Uh, last week in the Natural Bridge Caverns in San Antonio, I, mean, I don't even understand what caverns are doing. There's no mountains, but there's these enormous caverns about 180 feet down. And Jamie said, looks like paper mache. And at that conference also I was able to leave him out alone in a hotel room with his cell phone, you know, just for his dad, uh, for about half an hour while I went to one of those ASA receptions. So, and one of the reasons I tell these stories to Jamie, right, is I want to enhance his own sense of his independence and also to remind him of how far he has come from the times when I never would have attempted any of this. But I don't want to give the impression that his progress is the result of heroic parenting or even of heroic falling asleep on the job parenting. We have had all kinds of institutional support since the day he was born, as some of you know from the Red Lifers who know it, from early intervention to occupational and physical therapy, and now LifeLink. LifeLink is this program at State College. It makes it possible for young men and women with intellectual disabilities to take appropriate classes at Penn State after they graduate from high school till they're 21, and which also administers an apartment in a local apartment complex where young people with intellectual disabilities can live for a week at a time. His next scheduled thing is December 12 through 16, uh, 19. They have three residents, all men or all women alternating, and a 24-7 life coach supervising the group. And I'll say a little bit more about that apartment in a moment, but I also want to say that over the past year, Jamie's transition team has made it possible for him also to gain work experience at one of the Penn State mailrooms. That was a paid position, four hours a week, which is kind of great, except that I just took him into Social Security for, to fill out the forms for SSI. And of course they asked, you know, man, this, this is already fun. Um, they not only asked, you know, when did you last work? It's all about, for Social Security, they think it's all about injury. It's all about disability and injury. Well, when did you last work? I said, hey, you stopped working at, you know, May 2010. At your work, two hours a day, two days a week, we had to fill out how much of the time was spent standing, sitting, walking, crouching, kneeling, um, lying down. <laughs> what was the other one? Oh, yeah, you get the idea. And I'm looking, and Jamie's just got this. Yeah, pretty much put mail on mailboxes. <laughs> And he also worked at the local uh, Marriott residence in. Janet was against that, since that's not, not a paid job, and she thinks that hotel chains should pay for their labor. Also at a local nature con conservancy and at the local food bank. So I told Jamie I was going to mention all this, especially the bit about the mailroom, which was really good for his sorting abilities. And Jamie told me, you forgot Alpha, which I surely did, or his health class. Jamie volunteered for 20 years of work at the Alpha Fire Company, where he helped out our volunteer firefighters by washing their trucks. So the work experience is great. We talk all the time about what kind of job might be best for Jamie in a few years. Special assistant to a marine biologist or aquarium employee would surely be best. Um, and I, again, I don't say that lightly. Um, Salt Lake City, we were kind of stuck. The weather was in Salt Lake City, which is supposed to be nice and dry. It was pretty much the way it was here today. We were completely trapped inside. There'd be no zoo. I mean, we have gone to the zoo. we've gone to zoos in some extraordinary conditions. We've gone to zoos where the sea lions come out and say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it's not feeding time. It can't be here for any other reason. It's 35 degrees in Omaha and we're seeing the sea lions. Um, this was 30 degrees in Salt Lake City. And so I took them to this aquarium. Just a little little thing that sort of, it's a sort of down payment on what they want to build a larger aquarium. They have a couple of sharks. The person comes out and goes, the shark, chill. You know, we're more dangerous to them than they are to us. And very few, you know, breeds of sharks are dangerous to humans. The ones that are most dangerous to humans are great whites and tigers and bull sharks. And Jamie says, they're mackerel sharks. The docent turns and he said, did he, did he say mackerel? I said, no, no, he said mackerel shark. He said, I've never heard of a mackerel shark. Trust him. I mean, Google it. I mean, um, <laughs> it, 
the last time I challenged him on one of these things, he said there was a, a, a shark that could live in fresh water. I said that was ridiculous, and she said, oh no, a bull shark. That's how you know the bull shark. <laughs> but yeah, macro shark. Of course, when I Google it, it turned out to be entirely right. So as far as I'm concerned, he should have her job. <laughs> so for now, we're concentrating on the independent living arrangement instead. When he was 11 or 12, I began to talk to him about what he might want to do when he becomes a man. I was trying to do this kind of proleptically. I mentioned a variety of living arrangements, you know, with us in a group home, in an apartment with some people. And his first answer was no doubt inflected by his fascination with a local restaurant that adjoins a hotel with a pool, so you can see the pool area on your way to Mad Max, who said he wanted to live in an apartment with a pool. He made an apartment building. Within a couple of years, though, he uh, <clears throat> kind of backed away from this option. Next time uh, I talked about it with him, when he was a, a young teen, he passionately, passion-faced said, I want to live with you. His tone suggested he feared I was threatening to boot him out of the house, and they said, I said, no, of course, of course, Jane, you can always live with us. We will always love you. You can always stay with us. I'm just saying that when you're bigger, you might want more privacy. No, he insisted, I'll stay with you and Mom. Well, that's where things stayed for the next four or five years. Whenever the subject came up, I told Jamie he could always live with us in his own room, that he ever wanted more privacy, we could think about some other arrangement, perhaps an adjoining cottage, though someone would have build it. And he always said he would stay with us, and then came late adolescence, and the knowledge that other kids were living in a lively apartment, and learning how to cook and clean and plan their meals and spend their own money, and some of them had girlfriends and boyfriends, and slowly Jamie's attitude began to change. Now, I like to think the travels helped him in their way as well, by giving Jamie a bit more confidence in Savoir Fair. But, over the past couple of months, as uh, Jan and I have tried to get Jamie to uh, what is the term of art? Do more around the house. <laughs> Make his bed, tidy up his underground layer in the basement, clean up after dinner. He's often responded like a teenage boy. And so whenever that happens, Jan and I say, you know, you have to do this kind of thing in life like. And lo, it gets done. Since apartment living thing is a serious motivational tool, we just weren't sure when Jamie would be ready for the real thing. Or of course, you imagined uh, you know, when we would be. So when the call came one day last fall, pretty much last year to, to the day, uh, very late November. It was a total shock to us. Apparently one of the residents of the apartment had gotten sick and gone home. There's only going to be one kid in the place through Sunday, which kind of defeats the purpose of group living. So the lively people called us and offered Jamie a six-day stay. And we had just filled out the paperwork. I mean, with all, and the paperwork was going to be the bus by himself, can he prepare your waffles by himself, really the whole range of you know, 40 pages of this stuff. And we thought, oh, yeah, maybe in four or five months, we'd actually, you know, four or five hours later, we get this call. <coughs> of course, we jumped up and down, screamed, how do we pack? What do we live around? Um, we calmed down a little. We made arrangements to drop him off after eight, after dinner and shower and change of clothes, put his clothes in his toiletries and his necessary electronics, and even putting into that cell phone the numbers of his family members, so he dialed them with one number. We met his roommate, who was a delightful young man Jamie had known for some time, and now found they share a love of Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and The Dark Knight. And after the meet and greet, and the bed making, and the general moving in were done, we left Jamie to his own devices at precisely 8.45, actually, we're coming up around 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, December 1, 2009. As we were leaving the house for the faithful ride over the apartment, Jamie started down the back stairs with his iPod, and I said, I have to get my suitcase. I said, no, sorry, right, sweetie, I got it. It's, it's very heavy. He said, okay, sure. And then added in this weird sing-song voice to nobody in particular, what are parents for? <laughs> yeah, what are parents for? In indeed. Well, I suppose, you know, to help with heavy suitcases, uh, but more broadly, we have the same goals as everybody else who works with people with disabilities, to foster the independence of people with disabilities. 
Now, for all these reasons, I tend to focus especially on intellectual disability, not only because I'm Jamie's father, but lately I've been especially enthused by the 2008 revision to the Higher Education Act that makes federal aid available for students with intellectual disabilities. I mean, of all, I mean it's like the only piece of good news like, ever, you know, in the past 40 years in, in Washington. That kind of, that, okay, I exaggerate. Um, that kind of inclusion, I think, is the next great challenge for higher education, incorporating students with intellectual disabilities wherever possible, regardless of whether they enroll in a degree program. But I think the paradox surrounding independence pertains to every person with a disability, regardless of the nature of the disability. And that paradox is this. The increased independence of people with disabilities as a goal is absolutely central to disability rights, disability activism, and disability studies. And at the same time, it is inadequate as a goal. We want to enhance each person's independence, but even as we do, we do not want to set at a discount those who will inevitably be more dependent than others. Independence, I like to say, is at once indispensable and insufficient. Insufficient because even as we strive for independence, we have to recognize, I know I'm not going to tell Eva anything she doesn't know, we have to recognize our mutual dependence. Disabled and non-disabled alike, each of us needs so much help just to learn how to become independent. Paraphrase the novelist Richard Powers, National Book Award winner, and one of Jamie's friends. We need each need a great deal of prompting and support to act on our own. And now to return to Peter, Peter Singer and a little matter of what we can and can't expect of children with Down syndrome. This is also a return uh, to life as we know it, because in the opening pages of that book, I wrote that most of my time with Jamie, you know, when I'm actually with him doing all these things. Most, most of my time is lived pretty much moment by moment. And I wrote this specific passage just under 10 years ago. See, I will do a, you know, a little reading from about one paragraph. <laughs> Occasionally it will occur to Janet or to me that Jamie will always be disabled, that his adult and adolescent years will undoubtedly be more difficult emotionally for him and for us than his early childhood, that we will never not worry about his future, his quality of life, whether we're doing enough for him, but usually these moments occur in the relative comfort of abstraction, when Jamie and I are lying in bed at night and wondering what will become of us all. When I'm with Jamie, by contrast, I'm almost fully occupied by taking care of his present needs, rather than by worrying about his future. When he asks to hear the Beatles because he loves their cover of Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, I just play the song, sing along, and watch him dance with delight. I do not concern myself with extraneous questions, such as whether he'll ever distinguish early Beatles from late Beatles, Paul's songs from John's, originals from covers, these questions are now central to Nick's enjoyment of the Beatles, but that's Nick for you. Jamie is entirely sui generis, and as long as I'm with him, I can't think of him as anything but Jamie. Okay. Well, the clear implication there, you don't have to be a literature professor or a famous utilitarian philosopher to see it, is that a child with Down syndrome will never have the intellectual capacity to understand the Beatles over in those ways, or even to understand that some songs preceded others, were written by different band members, and so forth. So, this is overdue, but for all that time I owe Jamie an enormous apology. I couldn't have been more wrong. Over the years, Jamie has become so fascinated with the Beatles that he did me indeed memorize the entire songbook, and now many songs the Beatles never released at all, thanks to anthology and all the other <coughs> uh, Who's the Beatles releases. It started when Jamie was eight or nine. <coughs> he was fascinated with being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and Come Together. He still gets that kick out of Juju Eyeball. So I explained to him that John had written those songs, he liked to play games with words. Jamie was so thrilled with this news, <clears throat> this news that he demanded to know everything else that John had written. So I went back over the Beatles album, you know, actually, I first found my surprise that John wrote about two-thirds of the originals on Beatles' first four records. Uh, Hard Day's Night is like ten John songs and three Pauls. It's just <clears throat> almost the complete opposite of uh, late Beatles. 
And before I knew it, Jamie had memorized the Johns, as he put it, and proceeded to master the other three as well, for we go, of course, we go by the songs he sang, not just the two he wrote. <laughs> <coughs> Although Jamie also goes, and flying. Okay, and flying. Da 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 da. Okay, that's two and a, two and a quarter songs. All right. Then Jamie wanted to know who wrote Honey Don't or Roll Over Beethoven or Anna. And then, as we made the presence of each CD, he began to understand which records contained which songs. Then, as he asked, uh, began to ask which came first, I bought him one of my favorite books of rock criticism Roy Carr's and Tony Tyler's The Beatles and Illustrated Record, which, despite its title, I mean, it's great. It actually uses the term submediant. So there, rigorous formal analysis. By now, Jamie had a sense of the year-by-year, record-by-record trajectory, and as we bought him more Beatles books, we found that he has an astonishing memory for a lot of other things as well. So he asked me one day, remember when the Beatles were in the Bahamas? I don't think the Beatles ever played the Bahamas. No, he was, no, in Help, he insisted. And he shows me one of the pictures in his books, and yep, there are the Beatles filming Help in the Bahamas. Jamie, score one. Now he has these whole, you know, this endless questions. And he'll do this, you know, to kill time, if, if, uh, especially when we're traveling, if we're in downtime. Remember when the Beatles had a pillow fight? Remember when John disappeared in the bathtub? Remember when Ringo met the Nowhere Man? So when he's bored, right, on these <clears throat> long lines or long trips, Jamie will sometimes ask me to do all Pauls, or whomever. <coughs> and I'll proceed to pick random tunes from here, there, and everywhere. Ah. Um, I'll sing about two bars. Close your eyes. At, oh, that's right. I'm going to use this. Sorry, good. Um, and Jamie will jump in and say, with the Beatles, 1963, next. And I'll say, let me think. And he will mock me, and I'll say, Martha, my dear. And he'll say, White Beatles, 1968, next. And this can go on, as you might imagine, for quite some time, until my own memory is exhausted. On one of our trips, we waited 15 minutes by the baggage carousel. We got through about 60 or 670 songs, and much to the amusement or annoyance of our fellow travelers, one of whom asked, did you already do Norwegian Wood? <laughs> So what makes this especially curious to me is that he's not just cataloging the information and spewing it back. I think this is true of the way he learns French as well. He's got everything cross-referenced somehow, so he, and he never fails to name songs that I have forgotten. Mm. <clears throat> so even, but even more astonishing is his ability to associate specific words with specific songs. Now, when he was in fifth grade, we were doing the words on a spelling list. He had to make sentences out of each one. And for the word through, he said, through thick and thin, she will always be my friend. <laughs> mm. For your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, he came up with, you're going to lose that girl. For Victor, Victor is helping a boat on a river. Now part of his homework, you know, like I said, was making these complete sentences. And finally we had to say, you can't answer every single one with a Beatles song. Uh, you have to think of your own sentences. But if you had asked me back in 1994 whether I'd imagine that I'd ever have to issue Jamie an injunction like that, <laughs> stop quoting Beatles lyrics and your spelling word sentences. <laughs> I probably would have given you a very dirty look. Yeah. And so, I say to Jamie, I admit it. Even when I was trying to represent you to the best of my ability, when I wrote Life as We Know It, I still underestimated you. <sighs> it's hard for me to say I was wrong. And I apologize. And through thick and thin, I will always be your friend. <laughs>
kind of dope it, the symbolizers don't know yet. Um, because on, on one hand, what I'm doing for now, right, is just, here's the kinds of things I tell about you. Here's why they're important things about you. Here's the way you can tell them yourself. Um, he did not, I'll never forget that the first time he narrated anything, independent of me, to someone, uh, I think him to a water park, and normally when, when Janet asks him for the inventory, he says, we did this, we did that. And then all of a sudden, I don't know where he said, uh, he said there was a big water bucket. And Janet said, what was it like? And Janet, Janet said, all the girls screamed. <laughs> that, that was 2003, that's fairly late in the day. But I, I didn't even know they noted. it. I mean, now he actually confided in me and said, no, let's try. But that, that's very, very recent that he you know, has come up with stuff on his own. That's why it was so astonishing, it was you know, two weeks ago at ASA, that he just started to talk about his history of Paris, year by year, what they, you know, what they were like, what they did with him. You know, and the more, I'll use basically all of that I can get. Now when it comes to his actual writing though, it's, it's so funny, he does this both in English and French, he leaves out little words. He'll just skip over them. So if you just set him on his own and let, give him a sheet of paper and let him go, I was looking over, um, for some reason his English class this year is devoted to robots. And where he was clearly much rather do zombies. I'm serious. He's got a big zombie thing going on. And so we have to see the Will Smith movie, I, Robot, which everyone says is the second worst Will Smith, Will Smith movie after Wild Wild West. Um, but he also has to talk about you know, robots being conscious, robots who dream, yeah, that sort of thing. And I could see that he started off with pretty much you know, clear sentences about, you know, he got it wrong, it wasn't set in Chicago in 2013, it's 2035, but still, you know, and the further he went along, the more choppy and uh, ungrammatical and um, sort of tel uh, telegraphic the sentences became. So I'm not sure I'm ready to turn him loose on a word processor and just have him take over. Um, it's, it's inspiring, if you've read Ralph Savarese's book, um, now I'm going to blank on my the memoir of adoption and autism, reasonable people. Uh, his son, who really does have this extraordinary, um, almost language poet-like uh, perception of the world, does do chunks of paragraphs of that book. That might work with Jamie, might not. But for now, I'll be just happy to take whatever he's willing to tell me about his life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I was sort of confused because <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, I, I was thinking, I could just answer by saying, mission accomplished. Um, because I think it's all the more extraordinary, if you start from the premise that you cannot reasonably expect X, Y, and Z, and have that laundry list, and like I say, I mean, I'm, I'm taking pot shots at it right in lab in the last couple of years, but i gotta, got to reiterate this. If I had read that in 1994, I would have said, yeah, okay, this, is, this is, you know, you can't expect a kid with Down syndrome to do all these things that normal kids do, so you gotta adjust. And uh, what I've been trying to say back to singers, yeah, you do have to adjust, you have to keep adjusting your adjustment, and that's the hard part. And usually, I, I mean, I have sometimes, very, very rarely, overestimated what you can do. Mm -hmm. Very rarely. Um, in fact, the, the last one was actually, was not me, it was actually Janet insisting that he would snorkel. No, he's not gonna snorkel. He's just not, I mean, it's, he's very, very good in the water, but he's, that's not, 
It just, it, it, whatever, for whatever reason. And he just bailed out of, oh, what was he doing? Pre-algebra. He's very, very good with basic math facts in his head. But order of operations? No. Uh, I mean, I used to joke that, you know, when he got to the point where he was asked for the uh, volume of a cone, that's when we bail out of math. Because who remembers volume of a cone? Unfortunately, last time I said that, room of high school teachers. They like it. <laughs> God. Okay, four thirds pi r squared. Got it. All right. <laughs> no, there's a height in there as well. I don't know. But you really don't need to know that in order for you to swerve around the traffic cones, right? Or to, or to buy things in conical shaped you know, containers. Um, but, so he's been bumped down to more practical math, which turns out to be money. And budget, which I, I, and I told him, look, you're, you're out of pre-algebra, you're just having a hard time. I said, oh, you're getting frustrated. He goes, a little, which means yes. And I said, well, um, they, they might want to take you uh, into household math. And Jamie said, oh, that'll be harder, which is true, right? So occasionally, occasionally, uh, it happens that we, uh, our expectations exceed what he can actually do, but that is so overwhelming, that hundreds of times more uh, occasions on which he does things we never anticipated. And trying to figure out what will challenge him. Right? I mean, really, I, I left out a lot of the, I think of a, a lot of the books I work on with him will involve these, these uh, stories of travels because it's, you know, I hope they tell well, and, and, and he, he gets really invested in them. But I swear, he, I took him on, on uh, five years ago, it was the first time I really tried to take him solo on a, on a purely academic gig, which not only is arduous, but boring, right? <laughs> and because what's he going to do with himself for, for a couple hours, you know, during a meeting or a, a talk or what have you? And he almost stepped in front of a, 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 a rental car bus. Right off, he just stepped right off the curb at Baltimore Airport. Do 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 Oh, God. And there are two little things here. Last time we were in New York, that gave me pause. I mean, um, he just wasn't uh, um, negotiating social space very well, which means, you know, thank goodness it was a plastic bottle, not a, a, a glass one. But he was waving a bottle around while chasing pigeons on 49th and 6th. You know, at five at five p.m. I mean, you could have hit any number of people. He almost upended the tray of really delicious food at Katz's by you know, gesturing at a waiter. And I turned around and said to him, "Be an adult." And I thought about that. It only happened a couple months ago. But first of all, clearly, I'm performing responsible parenthood for the other people in the room, right? Well, at least that guy's got it under control. Um, but all and then at the same time, what is he saying? Be an adult to the kid with Down syndrome? No, actually, he's 19. You know, and we've talked about what he did. So I, he, uh, he, he pulled this, I'm an adult business, uh, two years ago at the, at the uh, community pool because all the kids out, out, uh, under 16 had to get out every hour. And he's like, woohoo, I'm an adult. I said, you are not an adult. You're an adult in the pool, but for no other purposes. <laughs> and now, even that is running out. And you know, the, the French term jeune homme is working pretty well. You're a young man. But yeah, soon as you have to be an adult, and you cannot you know, just cavort around and chase the pigeons in Midtown and, you know, not behaving himself circumspectly in you know cramped social spaces, so uh, I think you know prefacing all this with it's a kid with Down syndrome as opposed to it could be a kid with autism, a kid with mild behavior. There's so many occasions on which you know, the difficulties of dealing with Jamie in social space are not different from dealing with a kid with no sense of social space, right? right? So uh, <clears throat> and conversely, I mean I really uh, I know that there's a, a a cheap um, uh, topical shot to talk about you know airport security, but he really is fabulous at it. He's he's, he's a wonderful companion with that stuff, just as he is with golf. I mean, I, I have played golf with some of the most impatient, hover over the ball for five minutes people uh, in, in North America, 
and Jamie is simply a delight to play with. There's the fact that he has his Down syndrome, well, it means he actually is not that coordinated and he misses you know, six or seven shots in a row and then nails one. But he lives for the one that he nailed, unlike the rest of us who you know, are convinced we would have had a par for not to be six or seven shots from the blue, you know, back in the fairway. So I, yeah, I, I love it if some of these stories just seem like, this guy's coming to talk traveling with his kid. But, it, so I think they should have that function. They should have the function of normalizing stories about traveling with a kid with Down syndrome or raising a kid with Down syndrome or worrying about his independence. Um, but I think it, it also helps raise the bar for discussions of, of people with intellectual disability. Well, you've given us numerous examples of how um, you've dealt masterfully with the adjustments. We can't take this course, we'll stop in the middle, we'll do something else. How does Jamie deal with disappointment and these changes, and how do you deal with his way of dealing with it? Well, the story about his being sad, that was, um, which I still will not tell, because uh, he asked me, that was about seven years ago. He's had since another bout of being sad that is that was okay for your public consumption. And that had to do, I'm going to answer this question two ways. Uh, with disappointment like that, there was a moment in eighth grade, again, he wasn't getting any para support in French, or with anything else. And, he, and we were just walking the door and he says, I always fail. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. He goes, it's too hard. I said, it is pretty hard. It's a pretty hard thing to learn. Said, You've done amazingly well. But no, you don't always fail. And if you want to stop, we'll stop. But, you know, I, I told him very early on. In fact, I, what, I, what it was was I read a story about a young man in Dallas, first person who graduated from the Dallas syndrome, graduated from high school. It was a really celebratory story. The follow-up three years later was pretty sad. Uh, he was depressed. He had no social network. You know, and I said, you know, I'll just say apropos of nothing, Jamie, if you're ever sad, you're ever depressed, you're ever disappointed about something, you always tell me. And he's just, and, you know, but I'm glad I said that because he really was getting frustrated with French. And he was also frustrated with the entire situation in eighth grade. He did, I think, this past month, experience the uh, being dropped from uh, pre-algebra as a demotion. But at the same time, I can see neither of us were, I'm sorry, order of operations. <laughs> and and the order of operation, not even cut. Yes, yeah, so you got to do things in, in, in parentheses first, and you got to do you know, um, addition as a parent. But it, it, it's not always clear in the first place. And then doing that, and then doing multiple nested questions about that, it, it didn't seem to have any point to him. So he wasn't all that disappointed. So with, with what he can achieve intellectually, he knows he has limitations. He knows he has really considerable strengths as well. Otherwise, he wouldn't be speaking up to docents in, in aquariums. So I, I think he has a, a fairly uh, realistic sense of what he, you know, at any one moment can and can't do. Um, we thought for a moment, for example, that he was going um, to, we were going to break it to him that he can't drive. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I had him drive the golf cart a couple of times. Um, last time, you know, I, I gave him three tries, and then the third time he actually did hit the brake. <laughs> but the first time, the first time he did not. And, you know, this could, this could be dangerous. These are not really terribly safe vehicles to begin with. Um, so, I mean, as my way of breaking into a moment ago, that, you know, you know, driving a car, probably probably beyond you. Uh, he remarked that one of the people in his group, a young man with autism, who is very difficult to play golf with, um, nevertheless can drive. And Jamie thinks that's amazing. I mean, he's, very, he's very proud in the way, you know, this kid over here can drive. So I think that that's one of the things, you know, he needs, as, as he's growing, he's gotten 
more emotionally expansive and able not only to admit to disappointment, but to deal with it. Um, one tr more trivial example. The first time I used the word with him, he'd been looking forward all day to swimming. I said, yeah, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, but sure, I have to get a pool. And we, we, we belong to this stupid gym that like closed, you know, at one o'clock on a Saturday, which makes no damn sense. And I'm sure by the time we got there, it was closed. And he was inconsolable, sorry. Just could not be, uh, you know, there was nothing I could substitute for it. Um, not even you know, going to the wife or was fixated on this one thing. And that was about six, seven, eight years ago. Now he's very, very good at accepting mm -hmm. the thing being. The sad story had to do with um, when, you know, when he was sad. Uh, when Nick moved out of the house, I hadn't hardly mentioned Nick at all, so feel free to ask. <laughs> uh, but uh, we went very quickly. It was very, very obvious, because Nick uh, had made a point. I'm exaggerating. But Nick had made sort of a point of befriending all the um, misfit children of State College. Nick is Jamie's older brother. He's now 24. Uh, these were kids who, you know, problematic families, you know, they were thrown out of their houses, their parents were charging them rent, whatever, they all came up to us to live. Um, <laughs> I exaggerate only slightly. It was true that for about a year, year and a half, I had no idea how many people would be in the house when I woke up. The minute Nick leaves for college, whoosh, giant sucking sound. And they're not lost on Jamie. They are not really his friends by now. They're Nick's friends, and they're also his friends. Now, it's not, it turns out over the intervening years, it's not entirely true. They actually do uh, hang out with Jamie. Um, but <clears throat> that, took, that took him a couple months to get used to. All of a sudden, it's an empty house. And he misses his brother very, very keenly as a result. One time, when his brother came back, and the house filled up again, and I said, it was New Year's Eve. I said, hey, Nick's friends are your friends. Go hang out. And he tried. He came back after 10 minutes and said, I don't know how to hang out. I said, you're not, that's true, you don't. Okay, we have to teach you how to hang out. And he teach you when to listen, and when to contribute to a story, and not to imitate people laughing, you know, and stuff like that. And really, so, but for him, even to say that, even to thematize himself in that way, hanging out is not something I can do. I, I consider that a milestone, it's not a particularly happy one. But they said, okay, good, now we'll work on hanging out. Because a lot of people do not know how to hang out. Um, the example that you just gave of mindfulness, of, of recognizing what, what I can do and what I can't do, or understanding that and, and, and dealing with it. And I was thinking about that and also thinking about the, Jamie's construction of his own narrative and his own stories in terms of Rachel's project of the future disability studies. And when you think about how Jamie's construction of narratives might influence the construction, the future of, of the field, hmm. how do you think about that? How do you think about his ability to influence how we do that? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you where. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Um, when Nick was up, <clears throat> I'm also supposed to be writing in a whole other essay, like do by midnight. <laughs> this is how many things get done. This, you know, it, it, I, I sound like a, does anyone know the old Mel Brooks, Carl Renneving, 2,000 year old man? Where did writing come from? It came from fear. Everything came from fear. Religion, yes, came from fear. <laughs> Oh man, I'm so afraid. I miss these damn deadlines. Um, I'm holding people up, you know, books, you know, ready to be rolled off the printing press. 
But the opening sentence is, is that it's supposed to be, you know, uh, the Benji section is not hard to read. Benji's section in the Sound of Fury, it is not hard to read. Let's get that much straight, if nothing else tonight. Um, you know, through the, through the curling spaces, I can see them hitting. It's, it's, it's about a second grade reading matter, uh, reading level. And I know this because I gave it to Nick when he was in second grade. And I said, tell me what you make of this. And he's like, what the hell is going on here? I said, no, why don't you know? The words are not hard. Benji does not have much of a vocabulary. This is not chapter three of Ulysses, all right? This is not, this is not uh, Stephen on the strand. Why is this difficult? What connective tissue is missing? And so I think, I mean, uh, Adel Quayson is doing stuff like this, and uh, Michael Davidson, and a couple other folk, and I guess you all. Um, you know, now that we've established that disability studies have the potential to transform the humanities, what can it do line by line to reading of, of, of literary work? Right? And why is that sort of disabled narrative disabled? Right? Now, when Nick was even younger, he used to torment me again. This is a very obvious tells storytelling in the family, but he insisted that I would tell him stories, you know, to, uh, before bed, before he could learn to read, before he learned to read. And one night, I was just, I was really tired, I just said, uh, sure, uh, orange, blue, yellow, green, red, orange, yellow, and he goes, Dad, that's not a story. I said, fine, why not? And he goes, story has things in it, it's just colors. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, good, okay, thanks. Okay, cloud, tree, grass, cloud. And this is what happened. You get born into a family of literary critics' parents. And, um, but I was really curious what does a kid think a story consists of? He says, it has to have people. I said, all right, yeah, so maybe people. He says, they have to do things. Oh, they have to do things, too. They have to have time, does it? Oh, yeah. And I've basically been thinking about that ever since. And that would be, that'd be great if we could have some stuff not only about intellectual disability and disability studies in the humanities, because I think we're, um, we've got more than that than we had before. But really, what does this? Uh, uh, how does the uh, how the insights vouchsafed to us by disability studies affect not just humanities in general, new program here, but how we perceive, how we perceive uh, visually? I, I, I still um, have done, not done much with disability in art. Don't know yet how to do that. Um, but with disability in narrative, I think there's a great deal of work to be done. Literally, the sentence, the sentence level. Seems so much about, and obviously it's because it's how you set it up, but about milestones. 
in some way and the achievement of, of certain kinds of goals and the performance of, of certain kinds of abilities, a lot of them related to um, memory and cognitive capacity and certain kinds of interaction. In the Q&A, you've, you've talked um, uh, more about, um, uh, I think, You can um, right, you can, we'll just, I'll just keep talking as you talk in response to sure. each thing you say and, and try to We'll never get out of that loop. Um, but I guess I, I was very struck a moment ago when I think what you said was what was striking to you about um, raising Jamie was that you were adjusting your expectations, but it was about adjusting your adjustments. Right, right. Something, the phrase was something like that. And I don't think <coughs> I've heard that in the talk. I, I don't think I know that phrase. Oh, yeah, no, it was implicit. Uh, either implicit or at the very beginning about, you know, dealing with singers. Look, it's not, when you say we must have lower expectations, yeah. and you think you mean we ought to have lower expectations, otherwise it would be unfair to the kids. Yeah. But in fact, you're you know, actually saying something very different to all the people who are hearing you in English. <laughs> uh, I'm also saying that it was, a, it was a sentimental fool passage. I'm not just a sentimental fool, though I am. Uh, it's also that we simply do not know what to expect. And not because, you know, we, woo -hoo -hoo, you know, because the, those goalposts keep changing. And they change for people with cognitive disabilities, and especially with Down syndrome, I think. Oh, no, actually, I take that back. Autism, whole other world, in which, you know, the expectations change pretty much hour by hour. And I think that's more true than it is of kids in general. However, there's a great deal to go back to that question that's true about these, um, about what I value and what this talk is about that is, has to do with kids in general. And the best uh, phrase I've, I've, I've come across uh, lately, uh, Michael Sandel picks it up in his book, The Case Against Perfection. It's not his phrase, I'm forgetting whose it is, but it's openness to, to the unbidden. This is Sandel's argument against genetic enhancement because it you know, gives us an illusion of mastery and paradoxically reduces the concept of human freedom. It's a great argument. Um, the only problem with the argument is that it'll kill, except genetic enhancement, up to restoration of health, but not to enhancement, and good luck finding out where that line is. Yeah. <coughs> so, um, that idea, you know, I was teaching this last uh, couple of months ago, and I said, you know, this openness to the unbidden, and then Sandel says, you know, this experience of having a child, especially a lot of things involve openness to the unbidden, but having a child really does it. And I said, oh, God, yes. And everyone thought I was talking about Jamie. I said, no, I mean, in general. I mean, you don't know what these people are going to be like. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're going to turn out to be completely weird. Yeah. I, was, I was only being facetious, half facetious, and you just wind them up and let them go. And then the trick is just, you know, to chase them around the room, as Rachel was doing with Henry, and see what kind of places they like to go and what places they shouldn't like to go, and, you know, and so forth. That's what I value most in this, I think. Yeah, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of doing the performance criteria of being human. Look, he can do this, look, he can do that. What amazes me is the quality of observation. Now, again, that's a cognitive thing, but it's not a sort of look, he can speak French. <laughs> simply saying he can speak French, or simply demonstrating to the North African chef that he can speak French. And uh, Jamie did the usual, you know, because my, my father is, his name is Michael, and so forth. It's great, you know, we travel here from the United States, and so forth. <coughs> That's all great, but that bit about the Sydney Opera House looking like the Denver Airport, holy Jesus, I mean, I think that's, I mean, yes, it's a cognitive uh, achievement of the kind, but it suggests something more. It suggests something, oh, openness to uh, detail and experience that I, I really haven't, uh, haven't banked on. I have time for one more, one more question. But there's more talk to be had, and then books and so forth. So, so I think in answer to what you just asked, one way to kind of 
look back over the whole evening, is you started with a question of how can our increasing knowledge of and familiarity with and living with intellectual disabilities help us learn something original about narrative? I think that was... That's, that's, a, that's a frame I'm eventually <laughs> But But following your observations, I think that the answer is kind of in what you just enacted over the past hour, in that your now lifelong enmeshment with these questions made you a different narrator. Oh, absolutely. And, and that if we want to study the contribution of disability to narrative, we just have to listen to what you just did now. Which oh, I think there's more to it. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but just the whole world changes, and it comes forth in how all of us are able to use narrative in necessary ways. Okay. <laughs> I think I'll agree, although, like I said, I'm, this is uh, about this evening. Um, stuff that's really, it's written down, but in some ways, um, oh, not uh, camera ready yet and not part of the coherent project yet. If I can find some way, I mean, it would be too weird to do a book, a literature that says narrative disability. Oh, by the way, here's when Jamie and I went to Denver. Um, I think these are two separate things in that way. But yeah, did, did I learn about the one from, from the, yes, absolutely. And as with so much about Nick and Jamie, the thing that started me on, on experimental narrative and you know, child cognition and what have you, and the fact that line by line, sound theory is actually not hard to read, first section, um, started with Nick, but it's been fascinating a fortiori to see how Jamie does it. You know, to, to see the way he experienced uh, the narrative. He doesn't read on his own, but he's retained everything from Harry Potter and everything from uh, uh, Philip Pullman. And not only does that make me read these things differently, right? But it makes me ask again, what does narrative do? Every time another cog sci person decides, we're hardwired for narrative. That's great. By the way, can I just do a quick riff on that? Okay. Because I did read Brian Boyd's book uh, on the origin of stories. I love the first half. I love learning about the evolution of the brain. And then the second half of this book is how to apply that to uh, reading Horton Here's a Who and The Odyssey. And it's, it's great fun. And, and the problem is, though, that Boyd has this whole thing about how narrators construct things so as to retain our attention. And literary criticism says hasn't dealt with this. And I, in my review, I said that's because we thought it went without saying, literally. I mean, really, is that, do we go all through the evolution of the brain to understand the storytellers have to keep their listeners' attention? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem like a payoff is worth it, right? And the fact that we now understand Odysseus, very crafty character. Do you know why he's a very crafty character? Well, such and such part of the brain suppresses the production of such and such a thing, and this allows for the production of other stuff in the other part of the brain, and that's how he gets out from the cyclops. I'm like, I'm so glad our species knows that now, but I still enjoyed it first. Just, you know, because I knew he repressed the impulse and figured things out craftily over a couple of days. I got that part. Okay. Likewise, to go further over, from Boy, I think mean, Boyd so far is the best of these. I haven't yet read William, William Flash's book, um, uh, Come Up As People recommend that to me. But you know, the Dennis Dutton, uh, uh, my, my, my one sentence snark version of him is uh, uh, the elephant has a long trunk, uh, giraffe has a long neck. Humans represent themselves to each other, thus I refuted Judith Butler forever, QED. And, you know, and Boyd does this too. He like, throws all this theory under the bus. And, you know, and again, in my review, I said, who do you think created this theory stuff? 
same human minds yeah. that created the narrative stuff. Right. Right? It wasn't like this, this aberrant growth that showed up you know, because of the Johns Hopkins conference. Right. <laughs> so so uh, I'm willing and eager to entertain uh, more and more from the actual neuro and cognitive people about how we process narrative. That's great. But unless it actually does show me something about what rain hides or sound of theory or that I didn't see before, then I'm just going to treat it as really interesting back background information, but not actual readings of narratives. Yeah. So we'll see. Okay.